When the bills are washed, the laundry paid, the clothes in the oven, and the last load of dinner is in the dryer, you probably shouldn't be multitasking. Somehow we think we have to do it all. But what if there was just one thing you had to do that kept it all together? Whatever is the most important thing, give that thing your undivided attention. Welcome to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp. Here, we hope you'll find answers to some of life's everyday struggles. You can learn more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. There's so much competing for our attention, from work to home to children, even church. This week, Charles Tapp helps you discover the one thing that can transform the rest of your life. And it only requires a simple word. As he shares the first part in this two-part series, The One Thing. I'm certain that many of you have good goals that you want to accomplish this brand new year. But one of the goals I believe that all of us should have as Christians, and that is the goal to spend more quality time with God. There's no better way to experience the the mystery that is God than to spend precious time in God's holy word. And one of the most precious, but also one of the most revealing aspects of God's scripture are the promises that he makes to his people. As a matter of fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, look at what God says in relationship to his promises. He says, his divine nature has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Look at verse 4. Through these, talking about these promises, he has given us his precious and magnificent promises so that through them we may be partakers of his divine nature. I hope you got what Peter is saying here. In essence, he's saying there's no better way to gain an intimate knowledge and experience of God than through his word and in specific through his precious promises. I would dare to say that one of the most encouraging as well as endearing promises of the Old Testament, even all of scripture, is contained in part of the verse that we read today, the passage that we read during our scripture reading. I'm gonna invite us to go back there as we look at Jeremiah 29, but this time, I want us to just look at verses 11 through verse 13. For I know the what? Thoughts I have that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of what? Evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and I will, and and go pray to me and I will do what? Listen to you. Look at verse 13, this is my favorite. And you will do what? Seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your hearts. How many times have you gone to that one passage of scripture during some of the darkest times in your life? When you felt a loss, when you felt an emptiness, many times I've turned to Jeremiah 29. What God could tell me, 
Listen, I know the plans I have for you. Not plans to harm you, but plans to give you a hope as well as a future. But as precious as this promise is to so many of God's people, it is by far one of the most misused of all in Scripture. You know, so many times when we read God's Word, especially when we read His promises, we tend to isolate them and take them completely out of context, not taking into account what has been said previously and what has come afterwards. But in order for us to really gain a true, deep understanding of what is going on here in Jeremiah 29, especially in these verses we just read, 11 to 13, you got to go back to Jeremiah 28 and begin to see the fuller context of what was really going on. I'm not going to ask you to take time to read it now. I'm just going to share a few of the things that were going on. But when you get an opportunity, pull out your Bibles, maybe this afternoon or later this week, and just read Jeremiah 28. First of all, we know that Jeremiah had given Israel the message that due to their blatant disobedience against God, that he was going to allow King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to take many of them captive into Babylon. God even has the prophet to wear a wooden yoke around his neck to symbolize the bondage and the submission that they would have to go under the king of Nebuchadnezzar. But then there's this prophet by the name of Hananiah that comes on the scene, and he too claims that he has a word from God. But this is what he says. He says, in the middle of the temple for all the prophets and the priests and the elders to hear. It's not as bad as Jeremiah claimed it's going to be. He says, as a matter of fact, listen, you're, they're only going to be there for two years. It's not really going to be that long. Then this false prophet had the audacity to go over to Jeremiah and to rip the yoke off his neck. But I love Jeremiah's response. Jeremiah didn't argue with him. He didn't fight with him. He simply said, amen, I pray it is so. In essence, he's saying, that sounds good, but that's not really what's going to happen. And you can imagine all the people's responses as they heard prophet Hananiah say, it's not going to be long. Your, your family members, your friends are going to be back sooner than later. The prophet Hananiah, in many ways, is much like many a politician today who will tell you what you want to hear just to get your vote. They will tell you that if you elect me, everything's going to be better. Everything's going to be greater. There are even some false prophets in the church spewing this same foolishness, telling you that everything's all right, Everything's going to be hunky-dory, but that's not the message that Jeremiah came to give. He says, listen, they're going to be in bondage not for two years, but for 70 years. And then Jeremiah and God have what I call a drop 
the mic moment. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 12 and 13. I love this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah saying. Now you see what he did? He breaks the yoke off his neck because he has a different prophecy. Go and tell Hananiah saying, thus says the Lord. Listen, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place what? Yokes of iron. In essence, he's saying, you may think that by pulling this yoke off of Jeremiah that you can change my word, but you can't change my word. You may change the exterior. You may change God's word cosmetically. You may put God's law in a different order, in a different sequence, but it does not change God's word. And here's why. Because God's word is synonymous with his actions. Whatever he says immediately comes into existence. In the beginning in Genesis, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be what? Light and there was light. It doesn't matter what we do to God's word. It will always come to fruition. So in essence, he was telling Jeremiah, tell the prophet that I said, he can pull the yoke off your neck all you want, but my word is sure, my word is fast, and my word will never change. And he just dropped the mic and walked away. God was saying, listen, whatever I say, it will come to pass, regardless of how we think we can change it. So by the time you get to chapter 29 of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah has now composed a letter to be sent to all of those who are now being held captive in Nebuchadnezzar, by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He sends it to the elders, the priests, as the prophets as well. Turn to Jeremiah 29 verses four to seven. For there's several points in this letter that I want us to take a look at. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Behold, build houses and do what? Dwell in them. Plant what? Gardens and eat their fruit. Verse 6, take wives and beget sons and daughters and Take wives for your sons and, and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be what? Increased there and not diminished. Now look at verse 7. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Now look at this. God's people are held captive in Babylon. Jeremiah sends a letter and says, basically, listen, build houses. If you're not married, get married. If you don't have children, have children. And better yet, pray for the one who is holding you captive. Now, if I'm being held captive, this is not the kind of letter that I want to receive from the prophet of God. 
For in essence, he is saying not, hold on, you won't have long. But he was saying, hunker down, get comfortable, because you're going to be here for a while. In essence, he was saying, this may not be your homeland, but this place is now your home. But here's the point I don't want us to miss this morning. Although Israel's captivity was orchestrated by the hand of God, it was not used as a means to harm God's people, but rather it was used as a means of God's divine discipline in order that he might purify God's people. This is the same message in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12 when it says, whoever the Lord loves, he does what? He chastens even as a son. And every parent here knows this. We don't discipline our children to hurt them. Do we, parents? We do it to discipline so that down the road, someone else won't harm them. Because if we don't discipline our children, we are setting them up to be harmed by someone that does not care for them. Listen, if we can understand that as parents and how we deal with our children, why can't we understand that when God does that with us? When we find ourselves in situations, we go, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Maybe God is doing this because he wants to discipline you. And he wants to discipline you because he wants to purify you. But when you read the first part of this letter, Jeremiah writes to the captives, the message that comes through crystal clear is simply this, that despite whatever circumstances God's people may find themselves in, please don't miss this, God expects us to live a life that glorifies him. If you're in the pit, live a life that brings glory to God. If you find yourself in the palace, live a life that glorifies God. That's exactly what Joseph did. When Joseph was in the pit, he lived a life to glorify God, did he not? When he was in the prison, he lived a life to glorify God. And when he finally found himself in the palace, it was easy to live a life to glorify God because while he was in the pit, and in the prison, he got accustomed to whatever his circumstances, to living a life that glorified God. And what I believe concerns God most is not always, listen, it's not always what happens to us, but it's how we respond to what happens to us. Because most of what happens to you, most of what happens to me is completely out of our control. But the one thing, the one thing that is under our control is how we respond to the situations and how we respond to the circumstances that we are in. You're listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, The One Thing. And if you're enjoying this message or you'd like to find others like it, you can find out more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. We'll conclude with the rest of his message right after this. 
Hi, this is Pastor Charles Tapp with Simple Truth for Life. As many of you know, nearly two years ago, I responded to God's call to leave Sligo Church as a senior pastor to serve in another area of ministry. But on Saturday, February the 25th, I'll be returning to the Sligo pulpit with a very timely message titled, A Crisis of Faith. You know, for the past several years, our world has encountered one major crisis after another with no apparent reprieve in sight. But there's another crisis on the horizon and is taking place in the hearts of many believers. It is the greatest crisis of all, a crisis of faith. For many of us, the recent events in our world have shaken our faith to its very core. But God has a word of hope for his people. So join us on Saturday, February the 25th at 11 a.m. at Sligo Church. This is Simple Truths for Life. And with so much vying for our attention, how do we possibly keep it all together? Charles Tapp helps you discover the one thing that can transform your life. As he shares the rest of his message, the one thing. Part of the response that God expected from these captives in Babylon, it says in this letter, is to pray for the leadership and to pray for the city and to work towards making it a better place. Now here's a lesson God's people can learn today. That regardless of who the leaders are of our country, regardless of who the leaders are in public office, even regardless of who the leaders are in the church, we should always pray for them and do whatever we can to improve the conditions and to improve the situation. Who says amen to that today? Why is that the case? In verse seven it says, because when you do good for the city, which is Babylon in this case, you reap the benefits of the good. I wish politicians would get that. I wish our public officers would get that. I wish the politicians, the Republicans, the Democrats, the Independents, the Green Party, the White Party, the Red Party, the Yellow Party, I wish all the parties would get that. That whatever is good for the whole is good for all. And stop being so partisan when it comes to the issues that infect everyone. There's another reason why this was important, that they pray for Nebuchadnezzar. Because God makes it clear throughout the book of Jeremiah that Nebuchadnezzar was a tool in the hand of God. He even refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. Lest we forget the message in Daniel chapter 2 where God says, I am the one who sets up kings and I am the one who takes them down. Please don't miss this. Which means then there are times in our lives when our leaders are where they are because God put them there whether we like it or not. And sometimes he allows leaders to be in position that we don't care for their policies because of our blatant disobedience to him. So God has to remind us that he is God. So he allows us to be put in places of darkness so that we can ultimately see the light. 
So the next time you want to criticize a leader, the next time you want to criticize a politician, think twice, maybe God put them there. Oh, it's so quiet in here today. Sometimes it is in the midst of some of the worst and most trying times in our lives where God reveals the one thing that will ultimately make the difference. In the best-selling book, The One Thing, if you have not read this book, get it. This book titled The One Thing by author Gary Keller basically gives one thing that if we follow it would help us to be a success in life. And this is what he is. He says, I figured out that whatever is the most important thing, give that thing your undivided attention. The rationale being that having the ability to say no to so many other things then will give us the ability to say yes to this one thing. And in verse 13 of Jeremiah 9, 20, uh, 29, God gives the captives the one thing that if they follow it, God's promise to give them a hope and a future come, will come to fruition. And that one thing is this and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. In other words, with everything you've got, with all of your mind, with all of your might, with all of your passion, with all of your desires, focus it on that one thing. It's what Jesus said in the Gospels when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So whenever we do anything with our whole hearts, we're doing it with everything that we have. But here's the challenge that many of us have. I would even dare say most of us have when it comes to our relationship with God. We think that we can multitask in our relationship with God. There was a recent article from Psychology Today, I think it was 2014, where these neuron researchers have discovered that it is impossible to really multitask, that our brains don't really work that way. It's impossible for us to do two things at the same time and to do them both equally. In essence, what happens is we do one thing and for a short period we stop and we move on to the next thing. They call this the myth of multitasking, which is why we are given the warning not to text and drive because we cannot do both at the same time. For a brief period, we're stopping and we're focusing on the other. That's why we should never text and worship. Everybody's putting their phones down now. Some of you are sliding it into your pockets. Ladies are sliding them into their purses now. Because you cannot do them both at the same time equally. It's like someone once said in an old proverb, if you chase after two cats, you won't catch either one. And God is trying to let them know that if you want a relationship with me, you can't multitask. You've got to love me and search for me with all of your hearts. 
The other problem we have with searching for God with our whole hearts is we don't even know our hearts. For our hearts, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 20, uh, 17, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and who could know it? That's why David's prayer in Psalm 51 is so applicable, because he says, God, create within me what? A clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And the reason God is telling them to, to search him with all of their hearts is twofold. First of all, he wants them to understand how much they really value or don't value God. Because whatever you and I do with our whole hearts, that determines and it reveals what we really value the most. So if you spend the time of your job, if you give your job your whole heart, you value your job over everything else. If you give your family all your time and your talents and your energies, then you value your family more than anything else. Whatever you do, whatever I do with all of our hearts, that's the thing we value the most. And what God was saying to Israel, you don't value me the way you ought. And the second reason he asked them, or he told them to search him with all of their hearts is so that they could recognize the condition that they were in and recognizing also that if they wanted to search for God with all of their hearts, that they could not do it by themselves because their hearts are desperately wicked and they don't even know their own hearts. But the most important message to the success of this promise that God's going to give them a hope in the future. I know some of you are wondering, where's the hope? Where's the future in all of this? It reveals just how much of a sense of humor God has. Look at Jeremiah 29 and verse 6. Turn there quickly. Where is the hope in this? And it comes, I'm going to give you a clue, in the latter part of verse 6. Take what? Wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to what? Husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters. Here it is. Here's the hope. Here's the future in a very obscure place. God says that you may be what? Increase there and not what? Diminished. Where's the hope? God is saying, have as many children as you possibly can. How is that hope? Some of you are saying, I already have too many. <laughs> the hope is that because they were going to be there for 70 years, most of them would die in Babylon. So if there were going to be any hope for the future of God's people, they had to increase in number. So God says, here's your hope. Your hope is in a future generation that has been cleaned through the captivity of Babylon. So as they would go back to Jerusalem, their focus now would be to search for God with all of their hearts. Their goal now would be to rebuild the walls. Their goal now would be to rebuild the temple. Isn't it interesting that the very thing we're looking for many times comes when God asks us to be obedient in a way that doesn't make any sense to us at all? Because whenever God asks us to obey him, it is always bigger than us. 
They had no idea that by having more children, that was going to be their hope for the future. That was the plan that God had for them. Not to give them a car, not to give them a fancy house. Their hope for Israel is to have a people who would have a heart for God. Yes, God has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. It may include a house. That's fine. But that's not his ultimate plan. His ultimate plan is to have intimate relationship with his people. And that's the one thing we need more than anything else. You've been listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, The One Thing. And if you want to listen again or share it with someone, you can find these messages on platforms like Apple Podcasts and now also on Spotify. Or visit us online at simpletruthsforlife.org. Now here's what we're working on for next week. It's not so much to define love as it is to reveal the proper place that love should have in each of our lives. Well, Pastor Tapp just shared his message, The One Thing, but next week you'll want to listen in again as Charles Tapp shares the second part in this two-part series with his message, The Greatest Thing. Well, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll plan to join us again next week for more Simple Truths for Life.